Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. I want to share with you guys one of my all-time favorite companies. I'm passionate about this company. I've been using them for over three years, and they make some of the cleanest and most affordable personal care products for the entire family, personal care and wellness products. So they have herbal remedies and tinctures. They have personal care products. My husband and myself use their deodorant on a daily basis. And most recently, they've launched a home care cleaning line, which we now have transitioned pretty much all of our cleaning products over to their their cleaning products. So we use their cleaning spray and their dishwasher detergent and their laundry detergent and their dishwashing soap. And we have been so impressed with not only the quality and simplicity of their products, but also the affordability and small company, family-owned company experience that we get when we shop with them. So the company is Earthly and they are just phenomenal. You can go shop at earthly.com and earthly is spelled E-A-R-T-H-L-E-Y.com slash R-E-F slash T Kulik. Alternatively, you can thank me for your checkout. Um, Thank you. Thank me for your order in the checkout section. And you can use the code Taylor10 to save 10% off your first order. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome back. Um, this is the first episode of season four. I think we're on season four now, which is wild. Um, so this is actually a different episode than I was going to originally publish as the first episode of the season. So the next week's episode will kind of, I might also say that it's the first season because um, I'm not going to edit it, but um, this something new happened. So as many of you probably know and probably heard, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued an updated, um, like an updated sleep guidance, updated sleep recommendations for infants. So safety recommendations. And there's been a lot of talk about it. I've been talking a little bit about it specifically where they just reinforced their recommendation that bed sharing should not happen, basically, and that it's never safe. But I wanted to take some time to actually go through the actual the actual document, the actual um, revision of the recommendations for infants and talk about some of the main points of it and their language. And then I'm also going to talk about what I take issue with um, and expand on that bed sharing piece a little bit more. So let's just dive in. So um, they start out with talking about how each year in the United States, 3,500 infants die of sleep-related infant deaths, including sudden infant death syndrome, which we call SIDS, ill-defined deaths, and accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed. So what I wanted to remind y'all of here, which I think is really important, is that their definition of bed sharing and the bed, it does not distinguish 
beds, from chairs, from couches, from wherever a child is sleeping with a parent. Their definition, and they actually define this in the document for bed sharing, their definition of bed sharing is parents and infants sleeping together on any surface, bed, couch, or chair. Medical examiners prefer the term surface sharing. Okay, so that's a really important piece here because this is a theme of research that um, that people use to push their their narrative, their belief that bed sharing is never ever safe is that this research often does not distinguish from different surfaces of different with different levels of safety. So, for example, we know from lots of research that bed sharing, when done safely, when done in the absence of risk factors, is safe. Relatively speaking, it is not significantly more dangerous than crib sleeping, especially after four months old. There is some research that shows it might be slightly more risky um, to babies before four months, but then there's also some research that shows no significant difference. So there's that's kind of up in the air. Um, but what the American Academy of Pediatrics does when they're using this research um, and when they and the research that they use is it this research doesn't distinguish between safe bed sharing surfaces and unsafe bed sharing or co-sleeping surfaces. So that parent who fell asleep with their baby in a recliner because they were too terrified to, to lay with them in bed, and we know that sleeping with a baby in a chair or on a couch or something like that is always unsafe, that parent is now lumped into the bed sharing category. So that's a huge problem because we're not being specific and it's really hard to get good information and figure out, okay, what is actually going on here? What is safe versus what is not when we're not delineating these differences and really getting specific with the language that we're using. So that's the very first thing here that I think is so important to remember is that when they are talking about bed sharing in this document, they are talking about infant sleeping, parents and infants sleeping together on any surface, including those that we know are unsafe. And bed sharing advocates will tell you all day long that they're unsafe. Um, so let's first talk about just their general recommendations and what they do. They have a chart. They've broken it into three different categories. They've broken it into A-level recommendations, B-level recommendations, and C-level recommendations. And what that basically means is it's based on the strength of the evidence to support this recommendation. So A-level recommendations are very strong recommendations. They have lots of good evidence um, to, to make this recommendation. B is – I'm trying to actually find the exact um, definition of what they said. Let me find it real quick. So I'll just read it to you. Level A, the, re the recommendation is on the basis of consistent, good quality, patient-oriented evidence. Level B, the recommendation is on the basis of inconsistent or limited quality, patient-oriented evidence. Level C, the recommendation is on the basis of consensus, usual practice, opinion, disease-oriented evidence, or case series for studies of diagnosis, treatment, prevention, or screening. Um, okay, so let me get back to this document here. So A-level recommendations include back to sleep for every sleep, using a firm, flat, non-inclined sleep surface to reduce risk of suffocation or wedging, entrapment. Feeding of human milk is recommend recommended because it's associated with a reduced reduced risk of SIDS. Um, they also recommend that infants sleep in the parent's room close to the parent's bed, but on a separate surface designed for infants, ideally for at least the first six months. Keep soft objects and loose bedding, etc., away from the bed to reduce risk of SIDS. Offering a pacifier at nap time and bedtime is recommended to reduce the risk of SIDS. Avoid smoke and nicotine exposure during pregnancy and after birth. Avoid alcohol, marijuana, drugs, etc. Avoid overheating and head covering. Um, 
regular prenatal care for pregnant women, um, immunization, et cetera, do not use. So this is all like this, none of this has really changed. So I'm going to focus on kind of what has changed thus far. I also want to go to level um, B. So B level recommendations include avoid the use of commercial devices that are inconsistent with safe sleep recommendations. And then level C, C level recommendations are there's no evidence to recommend swaddling as a strategy to reduce the risk of SIDS. And then um, continue research and surveillance on the risk factors, causes, and pathophysiology mechanisms of sleep-related deaths with the ultimate goal of eliminating these deaths entirely. Okay. So I want to talk a bit about the, the differences from the last guidelines, which were from 2016 and this year, 2022 guidelines. And they have a chart to show the main differences. So I want to get to that. Um, so topic is sleep surface. The 2016 guidelines were use a firm sleep surface. Um, the revised guidelines are use a firm, flat, non-inclined sleep surface. So they add that they added that non-inclined piece in there. And sleep surfaces with inclines, uh, and again, I'm just reading straight basically verbatim their recommendations here and their guidelines. So they say sleep surfaces with inclines of greater than 10 degrees are unsafe for infant sleep. They talk about cradle boards. So it says some American Indian and American Indian and Alaska Native communities have promoted the use of cradle boards as an infant sleep surface. There are no data regarding the safety of cradle boards for sleep, but the NICHD suggests cradle boards as a culturally appropriate infant sleep surface. Care should be taken so that the infants do not overheat. Um, and then talks about the 2021 CPSC rule, which... If you guys were following me on Instagram at the time, we actually did try to get them to consider bed sharing families in this rule that they created, but they did not. So a lot of us wrote in um, to the CPSC and just asked for our voices to be heard for bed sharing families, and they did not. So anyways, um, they, they passed this rule that any infant sleep product must meet existing federal safety standards for cribs, bassinets, play yards, and bedside sleepers. This includes inclined sleep products, hammocks, baby boxes, in-bed sleepers, baby nests and pods, comp compact bassinets without a sander legs, etc. Um, and products that do not meet the federal safety standard are likely not safe for infant sleep and their use is not recommended. I don't want to go more into what that rule actually means and how it relates to bed sharing families because I spent so much time on it last year and I think this episode might already be pretty long. Um, so I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about that right now. Um, okay. And then breastfeeding. So again, we're talking about the differences here between the 2016 guidelines and then the 2022 updated guidelines. So for breastfeeding in 2016, they said breastfeeding is associated with a reduced, reduced risk of SIDS unless contraindicated mothers should breastfeed exclusively or feed with expressed milk for six months in alignment with recommendations of the AAP. The updated guidelines say that feeding of human milk is recommended because it is associated with a reduced risk of SIDS. Unless it is contraindicated or the parent is unable to do so, it is recommended that infants be fed with human milk for about six months with continuation of human milk feeding for one year or longer as mutually desired by parent and infant. Um, and then it also adds in here that because preterm and low birth weight infants are at higher risk of dying from SIDS, it is particularly important to emphasize the benefits of human milk, engage with families to understand the barriers and facilitators to provision of human milk, and provide more intensive assistance during prolonged NICU hospitalization for these groups. They also add in here um, that some parents are unable to choose or choose not to 
feed human milk. So when discussing breastfeeding, culturally appropriate, respectful, and non-judgmental communication is recommended um, and that these families should still be counseled on the importance of following the other safe sleep recommendations. We will get back to the breastfeeding piece in a moment because it is one of the pieces that um, I agree with for the most part. And it relates to why their their guidelines to just never bed sharing, it should never be supported or recommended is so, so flawed to me. Um, so for the topic of sleep location, in, the, in 2016, their guidelines stated that it's recommended that infants sleep in the parent's room close to the parent's bed, but on a separate surface designed for infants, ideally for the first year of life, but at least for the first six months. Um, in contrast to that, the updated guidelines say it is recommended that infants sleep in – actually, it's exactly the same. I'm just reading it. So they haven't changed that piece of it um, at all. Actually, they did take out – they took out the piece about ideally for the first year of life, and instead it just says they should sleep in parents' room close to the parents' bed but on a separate surface designed for infants, ideally for at least the first six months. So it seems like they've moved from ideally for the first year of life but at least for six months to ideally for at least the first six months. And then um, – in 2016, it says there are specific circumstances that in case control studies and case series have been shown to substantially increase the risk of SIDS or unintentional injury or death while bed sharing, and these should be avoided at all times. So bed sharing with a term normal in weight infant age less than four months and infants born preterm and or with low birth weight, regardless of parental smoking status, even for breastfed infants, there is an increased risk of SIDS when bed sharing if age less than four months. Um... So they really focus on parents – this was from 2016. They really focused on parents shouldn't bed share if the infant is less than four months, um, that parents shouldn't be at bed share with a current smoker, or if the mother smoked during pregnancy, bed sharing with someone who is impaired in his alertness or ability to arouse because of fatigue or use of sedating medications should not happen, bed sharing with anyone who is not the infant's parent, including non-parental caregivers and other children, bed sharing on a soft surface such as waterbed, old mattress, sofa, couch, or armchair um, shouldn't happen, and bed sharing with soft bedding accessories such as pillows or blankets. So those are the situations in 2016 where it said bed sharing should not happen. Um, so actually this is well, this is worse than I thought okay I'm gonna I'm actually reading through some of this for the first time right now um and so then in 2022 guidelines they have updated and this is what it says the AAP understands and respects that many parents choose to routinely bed share for a variety of reasons including facilitation of breastfeeding cultural preferences and belief that it belief that it is better and safer for their infant however based on the evidence we are unable to recommend bed sharing under any circumstances having the infant close by their bedside in a crib or bassinet will allow parents to feed comfort and respond to their infant's needs it is also important for parents pediatricians other physicians and non-physician clinicians to know that the following factors increase the magnitude of risk when bed sharing or surface sharing. Um, more than 10 times the baseline risk of parent-infant bed sharing happens when, and then they have in a bulleted list, bed sharing with someone who is impaired in their alertness or ability to arouse because of fatigue or medications, bed sharing with a current smoker or um, mom smoke during pregnancy, bed sharing on a soft surface such as a waterbed, old mattress, sofa, couch, or armchair, and then five to ten times the baseline risk of parent-infant bed sharing includes the following. Term or normal weight infant age less than four months, um, even if neither parent smokes and even if the infant is breastfed, bed sharing with anyone who is not the infant's parent, and then two to five times the baseline risk of parent-infant bed sharing, preterm or low birth weight infant, even if neither parent smokes, and bed sharing with soft bedding accessories such as pillows and blankets. 
Let's continue. Um, so in 2016, they said the safest place for a baby to sleep is on a separate sleep surface designed for infants close to the parent's bed. However, the AAP acknowledges that parents frequently fall asleep while feeding the infant. Evidence suggests that it is less hazardous to fall asleep with the infant in the adult bed than on a sofa or armchair um, should the parent fall asleep. In 2022, the guidelines now say bed sharing can occur unintentionally if parents fall asleep while feeding their infant or at times when parents are particularly tired or infants are fussy. Evidence suggests that it is relatively less hazardous but still not recommended to fall asleep with the infant in the adult bed than on a sofa or armchair should the parent fall asleep. Um, okay. And then it talks about – let me see. I want to see what actually has changed here. Um, we're going to get back to the bed sharing piece. We're going to get back to the breastfeeding piece. I just kind of want to run through these guidelines first so that we have a foundation of knowing what the guidelines even say um, and then talking about it. I'm not going to talk all of, about all of this. Like they have a piece here about home cardiorespiratory monitors and I'm not going to talk about that. Um, okay. So soft bedding, they added a piece in um, here to the 2022 guidelines that say it is recommended that weighted blankets, weighted sleepers, weighted swaddles, or other weighted objects not be placed on or near the sleeping infant. So that is a new recommendation um, saying that weighted things, weighted blankets and sleepers and swaddles are are not recommended. Um, and I don't fully disagree with that. I think that's a, a reasonable recommendation. I've never, I've never loved those for infants. I think that it can definitely um, be dangerous if you're not using them completely appropriately. And I agree with that. I don't actually have a problem with that at all. Um, okay. I think, and then they talk about tummy time too. So I just want to quickly do tummy time and swaddling. So 2016 guidelines say that the, although there's no data to make specific recommendations as to how often and how long it should be undertaken, the AAP reiterates its previous recommendation that a certain amount of prone positioning or tummy time while the infant is awake and being observed is recommended to help prevent the development of flattening of the occiput and to facilitate development of the upper shoulder girdle strength necessary for timely attainment of certain motor milestones. Um, 2022 guidelines updated say parents are encouraged to place the infant in tummy time while awake and supervised for short periods of time, beginning soon after hospital discharge, increasing incrementally to at least 15 to 30 minutes total daily by age seven weeks. So it looks like the major difference here with tummy time is that they actually put kind of a time, a time on there. Like, um, whereas in 2016, they didn't really have an opinion about how much tummy time, but that a certain, a certain amount of tummy time should be happening. Now they are saying they are recommending that tummy time increases incrementally to at least 15 to 30 minutes total daily by seven weeks old. There is also a new recommendation or new guideline rather about swaddling. Um, and it says weighted, which we already talked about, that they're just re repeating it here. It says weighted swaddle clothing or weighted objects within swaddles are not safe and therefore not recommended. Um, in 2016, the guidelines stated about swaddling that when an infant exhibits signs of attempting to roll, swaddling should no longer be used. Their updated recommendation is that when an infant exhibits signs of attempting to roll, which usually occurs at three to four months but may occur earlier, swaddling is no longer appropriate because it could in increase the risk of suffocation if the swaddled infant rolls to the prone position. I think that's great information. I think that's a great recommendation. It looks like they kind of just updated it to make it a little bit more detailed, including that time period that the rolling is usually happening at three to four months, but also letting parents that it could happen earlier. Um, this is just a side note. This is not in the AAP recommendations, but um, many professionals will will say, you know, swaddling should really be 
you should really try to be weaning swaddling before eight to 12 weeks. Um, because after that, I mean, rolling can really be happening at any time after that. And so it's best to swaddle before, um, your infant begins rolling. So that's kind of the overview of the current guidelines and how they differ from the 2016 guidelines. And so now, you know, I was trying to think about what exactly I want to focus on here and what I want to talk about. And I could talk about, you know, why I don't actually agree with their interpretation and assessment of the research in saying that there are, you know, bed sharing is so this much more risky than, than crib sleeping. Um, I don't think I want to get all the way into that because it is so complex. I mean, it could take hours to get through that. It's so, so complex. I do, I have touched a bit on it in my bed sharing highlight on Instagram. And I think I might have also talked a little bit about it um, in my one of my first episodes, my podcast episode from season one on bed sharing. So go look at those, listen to those if you want to. Um, but if you're really interested in, in knowing more about bed sharing, crib sleeping, SIDS research and how flawed it is and why um, – you know, bed sharing research has never been on a level playing field as crib sleeping research. It's just not the same. Um, then I would really encourage you to go get Professor James McKenna's book, Safe Infant Sleep, because he talks about this in depth. He he goes into this research, the issues with the research in depth and the complexities of it. And I was I have the book in front of me. It's an amazing book. I really recommend it as a really good resource for you if you're wanting to advocate for your family or just educate yourself more about this and feel more comfortable and confident. Um, but I was just kind of flipping through it to see if there was anything that I wanted to pull out of this to just kind of show you. And um, one thing that I did want to mention was that um, you know, I did look at the research that the AAP referenced in these guidelines, and some of that research um, did not account for unsafe sleep circumstances. They did not account for known risk factors. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. Um, there, you know, you're going to get mixed results with everything, but this is what I wanted to share with you. So um, Professor James McKenna is writing in this book about two doctors who began to wonder whether or not there were actually SIDS risks associated with bed sharing in the absence of hazardous factors. To answer this, Dr. Blair, Dr. Fleming, those are the two doctors, and their research team, along with researchers who directed epidemiological studies in other countries, looked to data from studies that focus more specifically on hazardous environments. Because that's the problem is that so many of these studies are just focusing on the environment, whether a baby was sleeping in a crib or whether a baby was sleeping in a bed and or a couch or a chair, which is also often lumped into bed. Um, and then they are saying, okay, well, this many babies died in the bed and this many babies died in the crib. And so bed sharing is inherently unsafe, but they're not looking at all of the other factors that are involved in bed sharing. So they're not always looking at all of the hazardous situations and they're not looking at the breastfeeding relationship and the benefits on the breastfeeding relationship in, in, um, preventing SIDS. So this led to, I'm continuing what Professor James McKenna wrote. This led to two different pooled analysis, one led by Dr. Bob Carpenter and another by Dr. Blair. The analysis reached opposite conclusions. So Dr. Carpenter found an increased risk of SIDS associated with bed sharing, even in the absence of any hazardous factors, while doctors Blair and Fleming found no risk in the absence of hazardous factors. Creating further confusion, Dr. Blair's research team also found for the first time a positive protective effect against SIDS when bed sharing with babies 
three months of age or older. Um, so he goes in, in to talk about why um, these differences might be found and why they have. Um, so he ends up saying he ends up writing that for Dr. Carpenter's analysis, and Dr. Carpenter's analysis is the one that concluded that an increased risk of SIDS was associated with bed sharing, even in the absence of other hazardous factors. So that um, this the problem was compounded by the fact that as much as sixty percent of the data was imputed, and he talks about how. Um, Imputed data is inferred instead of collected, and it can easily be wrong. So while imputation can be appropriate when information on cofactors are missing, Dr. Blair emphasized that it is definitely pushing the boundaries when the study results depend on a significant number of missing variables that need to be constructed. And primarily what was missing from the analysis were questions about alcohol consumption and drug use, which we know are extremely important factors affecting bed sharing safety. So what that's saying, what they're what he's saying is that in some of these data analyses and research, they don't have all of the information. So they don't know if a parent who had an infant who died, they don't have the information to know whether that parent was on drugs or had taken al- or had drink alcohol. And so when they're inputting the data to make the analysis, they are inferring that the parent was not. And so we can see how that can easily skew data and easily impact it. Um, there was another, another study that, oh, I lost my page. Um, there was another study that, sorry, be patient with me, please, while I try it. Okay. I just want to read you this one more, and then I'm going to move on from the research piece of it because I want to talk about another aspect of it. Um, so I'm just going to read this passage to you. Doctors Margaret Blaby and Bradford D. Gesner examined 13 years of Alaskan infant deaths that occurred while bed sharing to access the contribution of known risk factors. As explained in their paper, they examined vital records, medical records, autopsy reports, and first responder reports for most infant deaths between 1992 and 2004. About 13% of deaths, or 126 infants, occurred while bed sharing, but 99% of these had at least one modifiable risk factor present, including maternal tobacco or marijuana use, sleeping with an impaired person, and infants sleeping prone or on their bellies. In other words, almost all bed sharing deaths occurred in association with multiple risk factors. This suggests that bed sharing alone does not increase the risk of infant death. If modifiable factors were eliminated, and especially if breastfeeding were involved, I would predict that breast sleeping will prove to be the safest way to bed share. So those are the words of Professor James McKenna. I just think it's fascinating because it we can argue all day long about the research and whether the research shows that bed bed sharing is inherently more dangerous than crib sleeping. I disagree that it does. I understand, like I've read Professor James McKenna's work, I understand all of the issues with this research. I know that people can pull a research article and show me that there is a five times more likelihood of the baby dying from SIDS bed sharing versus crib sleeping. But I also know that there is probably a lot of information missing from that um, data analysis and that that data analysis is flawed. I, I know that. At the same time, we are not looking at all of the factors. We are not looking at the fact that some parents have no choice but to bed share. So that is a huge piece of it. Um, and that bed sharing has many benefits. You know, there are complex, again, look at the work of Professor James McKenna. Go listen to my first podcast episode, one of my first ones about bed sharing. There are, this is such a nuanced conversation and there are so many benefits of bed sharing and baby and mother, um, especially in a breastfeeding relationship, being close and their physiology reacting to each other's physiology and moms helping babies breathe and all of that wonderful regulating temperature, all of that wonderful stuff that we're designed, that that's how our babies were designed to be with us regulating them. And that's left out of the conversation completely within the medical system. They don't care about that because 
they're focused on physical safety. And I get that. Physical safety is absolutely important. And I think we all have the goal of keeping our children physically safe. But it's not the only thing that matters. And I think that's what really is lacking sometimes in this conversation is that we're not focusing on what about when parents have to bed share? What about the benefits of bed sharing and how does that outweigh at times maybe some of the potential risks of bed sharing? Um, And so that is my biggest issue with this. I want to talk about a few specific things from these guidelines that I have a problem with. Um, So the first one being this, you know, abstinence-only approach to bed sharing, you know, them saying that bed sharing is never recommended. At least they did acknowledge that when – at times when parents will inevitably fall in bed with their baby, that sleeping in a bed is safer than sleeping on a couch or a chair or something like that. However, I just don't feel like they give enough information in these guidelines for that because most parents aren't reading these guidelines. Most parents are getting this information from their doctor and their doctor is just saying bed sharing most likely. I'm not speaking for all doctors, but in general, most doctors are just saying, or pediatricians are just saying the AAP doesn't recommend bed sharing. It's not safe. It increases risk, et cetera, et cetera. And they might, they might, they are often leaving out the part about sleeping in a bed being safer than falling asleep on a chair or a couch. Okay. So that's a huge problem right there. They're also not giving, they're acknowledging that parents are going to bed share at at times, but they're not providing the safety information for parents to do it safely. How is that helpful? How it's not, it's not helpful. Um, The Lullaby Trust, which is based in UK, did research and found that I believe it was 90% of co-sleeping deaths were preventable. They were modifiable risk factors that would have been preventable with education about safe bed sharing and safe co-sleeping. And so we are, it's just a huge disservice to parents and babies to acknowledge that bed sharing is going to happen even though we don't recommend it, but not providing any of the safety information to doing it. It's just the totally wrong and incorrect approach. And I have no problem saying that. I am 100% confident about that as a bed sharing mother, as a mother who has had no choice but to bed share. Um, so the other thing I want to talk about is in the guidelines, they're, they're, the guidelines are very supportive and encouraging of um, breastfeeding, which I think is great. And they acknowledge that breastfeeding reduces the risk of SIDS, which is absolutely true. People will argue about that. It's interesting because um, the people that are – a lot of people that are really anti-bed sharing that will like come to my page and attack me for in- giving information about safe bed sharing to parents, they will also take issue when you say that breastfeeding reduces the risk of SIDS. Yet the AAP even says that themselves. And so I do find that sometimes people want to pick and choose um, like which pieces of the AAP's guidelines they, they like and use that to kind of push their agenda and push their narrative. Um, So my problem here with the breastfeeding piece is that they encourage parents to breastfeed for around at least six months exclusively if possible and up to one year because of the health benefits because it reduces – this is mainly – their guidelines are mainly about reducing SIDS and not all of the other health benefits, which is great, but – you can't be pro breastfeeding if you are anti bed sharing. It doesn't mean you have to like bed sharing. It doesn't mean that you have to like parents bed sharing. It doesn't mean that you have to encourage parents to bed sharing, to bed share. But you just simply can't be pro breastfeeding and anti bed sharing because 
they that is that is a direct contradiction. The majority, knowing what we know, knowing the breastfeeding relationship, the physiology that occurs, the hormonal cascade that occurs while breastfeeding. Um, so if you don't know, not going to go into a ton of detail about it, um, but if you don't know, when a baby breastfeeds, hormones are released and both mom and baby get sleepy. That's just biology. So it makes perfect sense that if a, bre- if a mother is breastfeeding, she will at times be falling asleep with her baby. It is just nature. It is just natural. And so in order to really under in, in order to really promote breastfeeding and encourage mothers to breastfeed and support them with breastfeeding, you have to have a basic understanding of breastfeeding and the way that it works. And unfortunately, I don't think most medical doctors do have that basic understanding. Um, but if they did, they would know that falling asleep while breastfeeding is pretty much inevitable for most breastfeeding moms. Um, and if it's not, then, or, or what most moms do is they're sitting on the chair because they're so afraid to fall asleep in bed with their baby and they're falling asleep anyways because they're getting sleepy because they're breastfeeding their baby. Or if they're not falling asleep, it's because they're scrolling their phone and doing everything they can to desperately keep themselves awake because they're so terrified of falling asleep that then they're not sleeping. They can't go back to sleep once they've put their baby back in the crib because they're so wide awake and alert now. And so then their sleep and their mental health and their wellness is impacted. So I just take issue with an organization who claims to be supportive of breastfeeding and wants to encourage mothers to breastfeeding, but can't see this whole situation. They can't see this whole, this, this biological process in a much bigger and more holistic picture because we have to do that. We have to look at these from a bigger picture to understand how complex these issues are when we want to just compartmentalize everything. So bed sharing's over here in this group and breastfeeding's over here in this group, but really that's not real life. Parents, moms who breastfeed, the majority of them do bed share at some point, even if it's for a few minutes a night, they are bed sharing at some point. Refusal to acknowledge that and then also support them with that, support them with safe bed sharing so that they can mitigate risk in order to mitigate risk of SIDS, right? That's what bed sharing or breastfeeding is doing is just nonsense. It's just pure ignorance. It's pure ignorance and it blows my mind. It really does. Um, So I do, I too do take huge issue with that. Um, If you are pro breastfeeding, you don't have to love bed sharing, but you do need to be supportive of a parent's need or desire to bed share so that they can get adequate sleep while still um, feeding their baby in the way that they need to. Because also, if you truly understand breastfeeding, you know that scheduling feeds at night are not always appropriate for a baby and that some babies will be nursing every few hours, every couple of hours even. It depends on so many factors. It depends on mother's breast milk storage capacity. Okay, So there are so many factors to this and just ignoring that is just so ignorant, so ignorant. Okay. Um, moving on, we've kind of talked about how the research is really, you know, the AAP just makes it seem like the research is very, very clear that bed sharing is most definitely very dangerous and more unsafe than crib sleeping. And we've talked about why that's not really the case. Like, sure, you can find some research that says that, and you'll also excuse me, also find some research that doesn't support that. And when we look at the complexities of it, you can see that it's it's just so much more complex than they they seem to realize. Um, and oh, I would I should also say that Professor James McKenna has tried to be actively involved in 
um, shaping and and informing them when creating these safe sleep guidelines. And he's shared information. He shared research, and they have t- um, they have not considered it. He said that they have not considered it for their guidelines specifically. I think he was talking about their. I think it was the 2014 guidelines. Um, so they are they are. They are omitting specific information and data from breastfeeding advocates and bed sharing advocates. They are they are aware of this information. They are just choosing to omit it and not consider it from their guidelines, which is really um, disappointing because I used to think maybe they just don't know. I used to have more faith in them. Like maybe they just, nobody's just ever told them this, but no. Many people have told them this. There are so many wonderful advocates out there that have told them this over the years and shared information with them, and they are just choosing to either ignore it or continue to disagree with it and and really dig their heels in with the biased, limited research that they have that kind of fits their ideas and their beliefs and their narrative. Um, so I just want to move into talking about why I think, again, this, this no bed sharing ever approach is so, so harmful to parents. And I, as a disclaimer, I think that bed sharing – is a valid choice for many families in many situations. I don't think that you need like an excuse to bed share. I think that it is totally reasonable that a parent is just like, I love the benefits of bed sharing and I want to be close to my baby. And also I don't want to have to get up 10 times a night to go get my baby out of their crib. And I think that's, if that's safe, if their health is all good and all of the safety factors and hazard factors check out and you can do that in a hazard risk-free scenario, great. But I want to be a voice for the families that have no choice but to bed share because I'm one of them. And I have told this story, I've told my story, my son's story many times, but with my second child, who is my son, we were planning on bed sharing, but I also like set up a bassinet in the room because I have nothing, I have nothing against parents who don't bed share. I have nothing against wanting your baby to sleep in their crib if they will. So I set up a bassinet thinking that I would like see if he would sleep in the crib sometimes. He never once slept in that crib. Maybe once, maybe when he was like within the first week, like once or twice. But other than that, there was no way that I could lay him down in that crib. He had feeding issues. He had oral ties that were released at six weeks and then lots of issues after those oral ties were released. He had to go through lots of rehab and therapy and retraining his tongue function. He had airway issues. He had reflux. Later on down the road, we realized he had um, developed a food sensitivity to milk, which my daughter had when she was a young baby. Um, And my son might have had early on. It might have been kind of contributing to some of the issues we were seeing, but it really started when he was 11 months old. So after we kind of thought we got through the worst of it, 11 months hit and he was like screaming and crying for like three hours straight at night and wouldn't let me put him down, had to be upright. Okay. So I've been through the ringer with him and I will tell you, I know my son and I've tried. I I know about sleep. I have, I want to try to get my kids sleeping in their crib if they will, because I enjoy some time to myself and he would not sleep in a crib. He would not. He had to be elevated. He had to be actually, he wouldn't even bed share next to me flat well because he had air. I think he had some trouble breathing at the time and he wasn't feeding well and he had feeding aversions and it was just awful. And I'm telling you that he would wake up every 30 to 45 minutes 
if he even got into a deep stage of sleep at all. And most of the night I would have to stand to spend standing rocking him to calm him down. Or like sometimes I could like, once he was asleep, I could like ease my way onto the bed and have him on my chest as I leaned against the bed. And I could sometimes get some sleep that way. Um, But it was, it took about five months for him to be able to sleep flat next to me in the bed. Do you think I was going to be able to ever get him into a crib? Not for lack of trying. I tried. So it makes me so angry that these parents, and this, I am not, I am not an outlier. There are many parents, I've, I've worked with them, I've talked with them, experiencing the exact same thing that I have experienced with my son. This sleep deprivation, even with bed sharing, because our babies have medical issues or health issues, they are uncomfortable. And it makes me so angry that this is not even considered for a second, that these parents are just left out of consideration from these guidelines, and not even just the guidelines, from the medical system, because most parents are not getting the support that they need for these oral ties, the reflux, the food sensitivities, et cetera, the mouth breathing. We are not getting the support that our babies need and that we need from our pediatricians, from the medical system. Routinely, most often, pediatricians will dismiss tongue ties as a whole, saying they're just a fad or a trend and they don't actually cause issues. They'll prescribe just pills for reflux instead of getting to the root cause. They'll um, say mouth breathing isn't an issue. This is all wrong. It's all incorrect. So parents have to advocate. In the midst of severe sleep deprivation, parents have to intensely and fiercely advocate for their babies to outside of the medical system to get them the help and the support that they need in order to improve their sleep enough so that they could maybe sleep in the crib. And and that's like the least of my concern as a, concerns as a parent with a baby with complex like feeding and, and tongue tie issues. Okay, that's the least of my concerns is getting my baby to sleep in the crib. So yes, it does make me very angry that parents like me, families like me are left out of this picture. We are still just told Basically, this bed sharing is not recommended and you're making a poor decision. You're making a decision that is dangerous for your baby, which again, I disagree with. Um, But even if that were true, okay, well, can you help us with it? Can you help us with our baby's health so that our babies might be able to sleep in the crib? Can you give us some tongue tie support? Can you train your doctors better to identify and assess for ties and then refer out to the appropriate provider? Can you teach your doctors the, do- the doctors that are under you and following your guidelines, can you teach them how to treat reflux instead of just masking it? Because reflux always has an underlying issue, an underlying cause. And it is often oral ties or food sensitivities. Those are two of the big causes. There's many causes. It can be gut health. It can, I mean, there's so many causes, but two of the big ones are oral ties and um, food sensitivity. So it's, it's all often all related. And doctors are routinely dismissing these things, sweeping parents that have these concerns, just sweeping their concerns under the rug, told, telling them to sleep train. Yet these guidelines come out and still say the same thing. Parents should never, ever bed share. Okay, but what if my baby won't sleep in the crib? What if my baby will not, literally not sleep in the crib? I I truly, sorry, I'm having some tone right now because I'm angry about this. I'm like passionate about this. This was my life. This is my life. Like I had two babies who would not sleep in their crib. My daughter was a little bit easier than my son and her issues didn't start until like four or five, six months old. Um, But my son wouldn't sleep in his crib. And it was enough to drive me insane thinking I like, and I knew at the time, I knew that I wasn't doing the right, the wrong thing. I just knew that 
I wasn't finding the support I needed, even being fairly knowledgeable about ties, I still was having a hard time finding this, the actual support that I needed to help him. We're still, we're still working through issues now. Um, so yes, I am angry about this. I am tired of it. I am tired of sleep and parenting and babies being treated as if they, we all, every, all of that just lives in a vacuum. Well, we know that cribs are the safest spots for baby to sleep in, which again, I don't actually agree with at all. Um, we know this, so you just need to do it. Okay, but what about the real life situations where babies won't sleep in cribs? Or babies, because it's a normal thing, they really prefer to sleep next to their caregiver because they attach through the senses. When can we fit in some knowledge of development and attachment and breastfeeding? When can we fit some of that into these guidelines in order to make them more realistic and more holistic? Because it's not just about physical safety and it's not just about textbook guidelines. It's about, hey, we have actual like real families out here who need help and need support. And crib sleeping doesn't always work for families. So let's at least provide them with some information about how to do it safely instead of just making them feel awful and telling them they're doing the wrong, most dangerous thing for their baby when in actuality, most of these parents are simply just doing what they need to do for their babies. Um, you know, most parents are lying to their doctors. Most parents who bed share are lying to their doctors. Um, most parents don't feel comfortable speaking to their doctors about their sleep arrangements. So they really haven't fostered a um, an environment of safety and support when it comes to sleep. And so I just personally don't think, look, I know that the I know what the AAP is. I know that their duty is to speak on issues that are relevant to infant health and um and specifically, dying, right? I mean, that's trigger warning, but like we are talking about SIDS here. So I get it. But when we are using AAP guidelines alone as a Bible, basically, for how parents are supposed to have their babies sleep and not considering real world, real life examples of parents who cannot get their baby to sleep in the crib or considering all of the other factors that go into bed sharing, like the breastfeeding relationship and attachment and bonding and all of the wonderful, wonderful things that we've already talked about a little bit that happen with a, a breast sleeping dyad. I mean, is it really helpful? I just don't think it is. I just don't. Um, and, you know, the other thing is with like this inclined recommend, this new incline recommendation where they're, they're, they changed the recommendation from babies should sleep on a flat, firm surface to babies should sleep on a surface that is has less than a 10% incline or sorry, a 10 degree, I think it was incline. Um, okay. I don't necessarily disagree with that. Like I'm sure that there is evidence. I haven't personally looked into this. I'm sure that there is evidence that shows that that is safe or that is the safest way for baby to sleep or that prevents some sort of, you know, health issues or, or risks. However, Baby, a lot of babies who have airway issues or reflux need to sleep on an incline. They will not sleep flat. They are they are unable to sleep totally flat. What are you doing for those babies besides prescribing a reflux medication that doesn't address the issue? That's my issue. That's my issue. They're not supporting families. Parents are going to bed share. Breastfeeding moms are going to bed share. They're going to. I'm just... And support them, support the babies, ask 
they should be asking parents, they should be talking to parents who do bed share and asking them, why do you bed share? What are the reasons that you bed share? And then if they really, really wanted to reduce bed sharing, they should be doing the research and the work and making the effort to support these families with the issues that they're encountering that are causing them to bed share in the first place. But that's not happening because all of this is a band-aid. It is just a band-aid. It is just a liability thing. And it is, it is not, there's not care and concern. You know, I posted on Instagram, hey, AAP, where was your care and concern for when my son was waking every 30 to 45 minutes and had to sleep on my chest or with me standing and rocking him and would not sleep in the crib? What do you recommend for me? Where are my guidelines? What about for those families whose babies have reflux and have to sleep on an inclined surface? Otherwise, they will not sleep. Where are their guidelines? Where is the nuance in your guidelines? Where is the acknowledgement that we are parenting real little humans in the real world and we're not parenting in a vacuum? And that sometimes that means parents are going to bed share because it's biology. It's the biological norm. I mean, I think that's really the mo the gist of what I have to say about this. Y'all, if y'all have been following me or listening to me for a while, I t- I've talked about this at length for the past over four years. And I'm so passionate about this. I'm so passionate with fa- about families being able to have access to safe bed sharing information. And it seems like you know, my my interpretation of these updated guidelines compared to the 2016 guidelines were that they kind of went from, well, we don't recommend bed sharing, but we do know that it's going to happen. So here are some situations that make it really unsafe, which I think is fine. Um, went from that to more of a bed sharing is not safe. It is always risky. We know it's going to happen, but we still can't recommend it and it's not safe. And it like it just feels a, li- a little bit even more rigid to me than the 2016 guidelines, which I still don't think the 2016 guidelines are perfect. You know, what changes would I like to be seen? I mean, I've ta- I think that I've kind of touched on it quite a bit, but I would like for the AAP to start focusing on supporting families who bed share rather than shaming them and vilifying them. I would like for them to talk to families who bed share and consider their experiences. And um, if they really wanted to, you know, try to support families so that they don't have to bed share, even though, again, personally, I feel like bed sharing is a very valid choice and I would still probably choose to bed share with my children, even if I didn't have to. And I think that's valid. Um, but I also have no problem with the AAP being like, you know, we don't encourage bed sharing, but we do want to support families who feel like they need to bed share. So here's how to do it safely. And here are some things that we're looking into and in researching to figure out um, why some babies will not sleep in their crib and how to help them through that. So specifically regarding like the medical issues and the health issues that I've already discussed here. So I didn't mention, but I want to mention that in the updated guidelines, they did mention just like other areas of research that they want to pursue, but it was mostly about SIDS. So nothing about, you know, why babies aren't sleeping in their crib or why parents are choosing to bed share, which I think is just a huge piece that's lacking. There's just a a big disconnect. There's a big disconnect between the AAP and bed sharing families. And um, they're not really, they don't seem to be interested in bridging that disconnect. They only seem to be interested in pushing their narrative and their agenda and not actually supporting these families. And, um, you know, long story short, 
they are doing harm. They are doing direct harm because they are pushing this rigid idea of literally putting babies in a box. Like I think it's so funny because it lit that that is a saying, but it literally fits the bed sharing slash crib argument and debate perfectly. They are pushing this agenda of um, putting babies in a box. And in turn, that means pediatricians are also pushing this and parents and babies are really just not being served and they're not um, – they are not being given the information that they need to thrive. And that is resulting in parents who are secretly um, bed sharing, feeling shame about it. And they are bed sharing unsafely. They are bed sharing on chairs and couches. They are bed sharing with suffocation hazards around the bed on a soft bed, et cetera, because they are told what not to do, but they're not told how to do it if they need to. And so research is pretty clear that most bed sharing deaths happen in unsafe circumstances. And I don't think it's rocket science um, to, to think that providing education about how to bed share safely to every new parent. Again, you don't have to say you need to bed share, but you can say we recommend crib sleeping. But if you do feel like you need to bed share, here's how to do it safely. I don't think that's rocket science or crazy or a conspiracy theory to think that it would prevent some deaths. It literally would. I mean, it would. When 90%, you know, you have some studies showing that 99% of bed sharing deaths are, are happen when there is a hazardous risk factor involved. And the lullaby trust information from that is showing that 90% of bed sharing deaths are preventable through education of hazardous risk factors. So when you have these statistics, I mean, you would be a fool to ignore them and to just continue to push your agenda without giving parents the education that they need to bed share safely if they need to. And that's the key point. I'm going to talk in, I feel like I'm talking in circles because I just say the same thing over and over again. Um, but I'm going to, I guess, in case, until people start listening, I'm going to be talking about this. And I'm not talking about y'all because I know y'all are listening and most of you guys are probably on the same page as me. Um, but the main thing I think for people, if you are listening and you are like anti-bed sharing and like really discouraging parents and shaming parents and who bed share is I would just encourage you to really listen to bed sharing families and ask and, and get curious about why they're bed sharing, um, especially the families that have no choice to but to bed share because I think that's what a lot of people miss is that they're just, they can't get it through their heads that literally some families have no choice. Their babies will not sleep in the crib no matter what they do, no matter how hard they try, unless they leave them to scream. But most responsible parents aren't going to do that for hours and hours. Like if I left my son to scream in the crib, he is the type of temperament and he had the type of issues that he would scream all night. And that would not be very responsible or loving of me. Um, so yeah, and, and then and then he's predisposed to other health issues because he had airway issues and I wasn't going to be right there with him to help cue him to breathe and um, know if something happened and all of that. And so yeah, it's very frustrating. Um, I just think there's it's a very narrow-minded, closed-minded conversation and it feels like I'm constantly talking to a wall um, when it comes to the you know, these, these medical organizations, especially not like parents, but, um, oh, the other thing I did want to quickly touch on too is the, t um, the back to sleep thing, which the, we talked about this with Hale, um, Hallie Bolkin in one of the podcast episodes from season three. So go back and listen to that if you want. But I do think it's important for parents to know, um, you know, I don't, I'm not entirely against the recommendation for babies to sleep on their back. 
but I do think it's important to have the nuance and the the context of some babies. For some babies, it is more dangerous to sleep on their back if you're forcing them onto their back when they have airway issues. So some babies who have airway issues or who have maybe a small airway or are having a hard time getting their airway open, they flip over to their tummies in order to open their airway. And so like if you have a baby who will not sleep on their back, who just can't settle and seem super uncomfortable, um, but they will sleep on their tummy, I mean, that's a pretty good sign that there might be something going on. And so it's just much more complex than that, right? Because I don't want to just say you should put them on their tummy because there's other safety considerations, um, especially not when you're bed sharing, you shouldn't put them on their tummy. But that is an issue that you should have them assessed and try to find somebody who can help them with that because that could actually be dangerous. And so it's just not one size fits all. That's it. I mean, th- this sleep stuff is not one size fits all and the medical industry treats it as it as if it is while ignoring all of the factors that go into it and all of the ways that they could actually be helping because they are they are doctors. They are supposed to be helping with health and medical issues and yet they are as a whole in general, not all of them. They are ignoring these massive issues. So that that is those are my thoughts. Those are my thoughts about the updated guidelines. Um, I personally do not care what the AAP says about how I sleep with my baby. And that might be a controversial thing to say. And But you know what? The good news is I don't have a boss. So I don't have anybody that's going to tell me that I am fired for saying that. Um, I don't care what they say. And you can choose to care what they say. And you can choose like I'll definitely take some things like with a grain of thought and consider it and be like, okay, um, there's let me look at this research that, that they have cited here to support this recommendation and see what my thoughts are about it. But it, when it comes to the bed sharing issue, I don't care what they have to say. Why I do care about the guidelines is because I know that there are so many parents and especially new parents who do care what they have to say. And so I want those parents to know that they don't always have everything right. They are not treating this issue with the nuance that it deserves and that they are not your boss. Okay, so I'm not saying don't listen to the AAP. I'm not saying don't listen to your doctors. I'm just saying take information and figure out what you think about it. Go read from some other experts in this area that are actually looking at this holistically like Professor James McKenna um, and Helen Ball and make a decision on your own. Don't just take what the AAP has to say as Bible in fact because they don't have it right this time. They don't. That is my opinion. Okay. That was a really long episode. Thank you guys for listening. I hope that was helpful. Um, Just kind of a breakdown of the updated guidelines, how they differ and like where I think the AAP is getting it wrong. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.